and welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. (laughs) I whispered it. And I'm Amber. And in this, our penultimate episode of 2020, we're ending in the place I was when this decade started, weirdly enough. (sighs) But first... (laughs) We have another new Patreon member to shout out. And so this makes several episodes in a row where we've welcomed new subscribers, um, which is amazing. Wow. And we continue to be delighted by and grateful beyond words for your generosity. Um, yes. So... When when Anna asked me, what is a synonym for <laughs> being humbled? I was like, brought low. <laughs> I didn't realize what she was talking about. Yes. Two meanings. Uh, yeah, truly, we are downcast by your... We are abased no. by your generosity. <laughs> I should learn by now to give context when I ask you these questions. So, Claire, thank you so much for joining. And listeners, if you'd also like to support The Dirt on a monthly basis, you can do that at several different levels, each with different bonus perks at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. You can also support us by leaving five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and by telling all your friends and family members about us instead of talking about whatever you'd rather not talk about over the holiday season. We're, we're here for you. We are. We're also introducing a new Patreon feature, which is annual membership. So this is an option to support the show with a single contribution that totals what you'd otherwise donate each month for 12 months. So we're going to figure that out over the hiatus and roll it out in the new year. And by figure it out, we mean click the button that does the thing. And as a final note of housekeeping, The Dirt will be taking our usual hiatus in January while we take a bit of a break and make plans for the upcoming year. But don't worry, the feed won't be entirely dark. We do have one surprise planned. And in the meantime, all of our previous episodes are archived over at thedirtpod.com. And now, let us away to Arabia. And there was there was a <laughs> there was a point when I like I was at work and I was doing the script and I went away and then it was like last edit was made a few minutes ago and I clicked on it to see what it was and the only thing it was was <laughs> Anna added in brackets camel noises. <laughs> And it turns out I don't know how to make camel noises. No, you noises, just made so a weird just... horse noise. There, they're like, yeah. like that's like a that's a camel noise. <laughs> that's all I wanted. That's that's all I wanted you just, from you. You just goaded me into making a camel sound. There were no goats involved. Uh, uh. All right. Well, Arabia. It's a place. Allow me to describe it to you. Imagine a box that's taller than it is wide, sort of kicked in at the bottom right corner and leaning to the left. That's the Arabian Peninsula. Amber, I'd love for you to write an atlas. But that's what it looks like. Consisting only of these descriptions. That's what it looks like. I know, and that works works for me. We all know my geography skills are subpar. Along the right side of the box is the Gulf, named the Persian Gulf by the Romans, but also called the Arabian Gulf, and more simply just the Gulf, which feeds through the Strait of Hormuz and into the Gulf of Oman, which gives way to the Arabian Sea and ultimately the Indian Ocean. To the south is the Gulf of Aden, the Guardafui Channel between Socotra and Somalia, and the Somali Sea, and the western side of the peninsula is the Red Sea. That's three sides of our box, and the northern border of the peninsula is hazy and ends somewhere in the Syrian desert and along the Iraqi-Saudi-Kuwaiti border. So... You might be imagining a big old box full of desert if you're not familiar with Arabia, but you're imagining wrong. There are indeed plenty of deserts to choose from, though. <laughs> let, me, let me do that intonation more like a human being. <laughs> Beep boop. Uh, <laughs> listeners, for a peek behind the curtain, I'm packing up to move in a week, and I have lost my mind. <laughs> so here's where we are. In the north, there's the Nifud, which made an appearance in the movie Lawrence of Arabia, and is very stony. The other desert is the one everyone associates with Arabia, the Great Arabian Desert. That's great. It's great. It's better known by the name given to it by English explorers, the Ruba Khali, the Empty Quarter. Alas, it was empty of nothing but white people, but that really had a ring to it, so it was translated into Arabic to make it sound more legitimate. 
Bridging the two is the Dahna, which happens to be full of caves. Ooh, caves. Not of wonders. Get out of here with your Aladdin stuff. That's just a fun fact. Throughout the peninsula are smaller sub-deserts that may or may not be associated with any of the three we mentioned here, but there's a lot of sandy bits and a lot of rocky bits throughout the peninsula. (laughs) Amber describes deserts. (laughs) Sandy bits, rocky bits, some caves. Chance of dust. Mm, Even though there are all these... Yeah, certainty of dust, really. Even though there are all these deserts, and Arabia is indeed the largest landmass in the world without any permanent rivers, that's not to say that the place is dry and inhospitable to life. In fact, there are plenty of green places. Like, oop, help me out with this one. Like the central... Nejd. Okay. Like the central Nejd plateau that's, that's green exactly and Exactly how it's spelled. <laughs> okay. Nejd. Uh, <laughs> Oasis systems and marshy coastlines with mangrove forests mangrove groves yeah i don't know what man, i don't know what the collective man, is uh mangrove committees along the gulf and red sea and coral reefs alongside the red sea known as the tihama and in between all of them the coasts and the deserts there are several mountain ranges to choose from i like that we're doing this smorgasbord style i love a this I is, it's take... gonna become very very quickly you will see why i am just like Loading you up. I'm loading you up with all the various features of this landmass. My plate is getting so full. Well, get ready. You're getting to my favorite part. The Arabian plate has seen a lot of action over the eons, so there are plenty of smushed up stretches of land, which is one way to describe mountains. In the corner that's now occupied by the UAE and Oman, there's the Hajar Mountains, which will become quite important later in the story. Running roughly parallel. Are they your favorite? They're my second favorite mountain range. Besides Appalachia? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Running roughly parallel to the Red Sea are the Asir and Hejaz Mountains, and the Dofar Mountains of Oman are an unreal, lush place with a tropical climate and harif, or monsoon season, of fog and rain. In among all the mountains and deserts are stretches of savanna, some huge oases, and seasonal riverbeds called wadis, which is the same as an arroyo, which is the same as a seasonal riverbed. It's like a dry wash. Yeah. 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 Like a, yes. Different, like regional terms. Mm hmm. Over the past 12,000 years, these various environments have been exploited by humans strategically to meet all their needs and have changed over time as well, affected by many of the same climatic shifts that we've discussed in other episodes. Maybe you're already seeing how laughable a name the empty quarter is. Also, my God, that's tiny text. As stated in a footnote, and indeed it is so small, from Peter McGee's The Archaeology of Prehistoric Arabia, colon, Adaptation and Social Formation from the Neolithic to the Iron Age, here's a little reminder of how big this place is compared to other regions that hold so much of Near Eastern archaeology's attention. Okay, let me let me squint. According to the CIA's World Factbook, the combined landmass of Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Kuwait, Oman, UAE, Bahrain, and Qatar is 3,100,922 square kilometers. The combined landmass of Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Palestine, Gaza, and the West Bank, Israel, and Turkey is 2,535,241 square kilometers. Even if one were to add the well-studied countries of Greece, Italy, and Cyprus to the former countries, their landmass would still be less than that of the Arabian Peninsula. So it's very big. It's big. It's very big. Um, And very variable. And quite variable. And so I wanted to make sure that this factoid was included here because as someone who studied with Peter McGee in undergrad, I heard this thrown around a lot. Um, Most memorably when... Um, the Arabia session was like the 8 a.m. session on the last day of the conference. And he was just like grumbling about the like landmass and how it still like only gets like one session at the end of the conference when no one's there. And I was like, I agree. Yawn. Uh, <laughs> so he's so early. <laughs> so early. And you're so mad. Uh, beyond the geographical descript- description, 
<laughs> the accent I talked to my dog in. Um, beyond the geographical description Anna just gave us, the Arabian Peninsula is huge and complex and varied in both environment and, as is often the case with different environments, social organization. So when we finally decided to do an episode about the Arabian Peninsula, I was confronted by the challenge of how to share a place I really, really love and miss studying with our listeners that doesn't come off as boring or disconnected. So what was it that got me? Why was I into it? Well, before I landed in Archaeology 101, which is literally what it was called, I knew nothing about this part of the world. But in our lectures, I was completely captivated by the way Professor McGee described the landscape and the environments and how very busy all these empty places seem to be. Uh, fortunately for all of us, he wrote a book, um, which you should absolutely read. That's this week's book club recommendation. Uh, mm-hmm. Get thee to a library and read his book. But first... Let me read a little snippet so we can all feel like we're in one of his classes with him practicing his cricket swing with the pointer waiting for somebody to answer his discussion questions. Is it coming back to you, Anna? It, that part. <laughs> yep. Uh, and for those of you who may have missed us talking about Professor Peter McGee in the past, he's Australian. It's not going to be in his accent. Say, no, that's... I'm, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I know. No. I'm just saying like that's a big part yeah. of but what there's just something about like the like awkward silences of like nobody mm-hmm. having anything to say and him just like swish. <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> but okay, this is not a fan cast. Um, mm. I will. It is today. <laughs> yeah, but, and yet not for him. Like we'll see who it really becomes a fan cast of. So he writes. The Western image of Arabia conjures vistas of sandy deserts and parched nomads leading their dromedary caravans, scenes that might be found in tourism brochures or on the covers of National Geographic. Even Wilfred Thesiger in his popular Arabian Sands. And I worked with someone who brought a copy of that with him to our site. I was like reading it while he was there. And I was like, hmm, little on the nose, my dude. Um, and charles dowdy whose arabia deserta was a bestseller in its time emphasized the desert as a defining feature of arabia david lean's canonical movie lawrence of arabia 1962 cemented an image of a hot dry and inhospitable desert occupied by forever disorganized bedouin and the occasional flamboyant and erratic englishman Despite its characterization as inhospitable, Europeans have continually have been continually drawn to this image, whereas Alec Guinness, playing Prince Faisal bin Hussein bin Ali al-Hashemi, quips, the English have a great hunger for desolate places. As I noted in the introduction, this image has done much to marginalize the study of ancient Arabia. The depiction of Arabia as a uniformly inhospitable environment and its inhabitants as timeless has discouraged detailed archaeological research. Divide Arabia into southeastern Arabia, western Arabia, and northeastern Arabia. None of these areas is self-contained at all, and all at different times, provide conduits for interaction within Arabia and with the Indian Ocean and Middle East. In each area, jagged mountain ranges rise up from alluvial plains and serve to delimit deserts. Not only are resources scattered across these environments, but in the position of Arabia between the Mediterranean climatic regime and the Indian Ocean monsoon, both of which have vacillated over the past 12,000 years, means that the zones are now that are now arid were once relatively well watered. Understanding the varied potential for human settlement throughout these regions and across time is, by necessity, the first step in conceptualizing the archaeology of prehistoric Arabia. So, read that book. Um, Despite 12,000 years of people doing stuff in this huge landmass, and despite white people being obsessed with going to deserts and telling everyone about it, this might be the first time that you're hearing about the archaeology of Arabia. And I don't don't blame you for that, listeners. It's just that, wow, you are in for a treat. So... (laughs) The first time Near Eastern archaeologists and Assyriologists really noticed the Arabian Peninsula in any significant way was in 1954 when A. Leo Oppenheim published his seminal article, The Seafaring Merchants of Ore, in the Journal of the American Oriental Society, which still exists. (laughs) 
<laughs> and also, they stand in solidarity sure. with Black Lives Matter, according to their they website. Sure do. And I like, haven't changed their name. <laughs> so, come on, um, you guys. So, um, I'm just going to read a paragraph ish from this chonky paragraph. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's. The longest 13 pages you might ever read uh, is this article. I I tried. I got Um, got two in and left. (laughs) Great. Um, So Oppenheim writes, quote, The most interesting and novel information contained in this body of old Babylonian texts, because he's talking about how, like, there's new stuff being excavated and published. And so, you know, this is like the 50s. So it's like they're just like churning it out. Um, Um. Contained in this old Babylonian, this body of old Babylonian texts has to do with the role of the town of Ur as the, quote, port of entry, end quote, for copper into Mesopotamia during the time of the dynasty of Larsa. And just for context, the dynasty of Larsa, the Isin Larsa period is uh, between like 2000 and 1800 BCE. So uh, right after right after the third dynasty of Or, like okay. like when Or was like popping or off the Or three period yes um so he continues to say the copper was imported by boat from Telmun today the island of Bahrain in the Persian Gulf this Telmun trade was in the hands of a group of seafaring merchants called Alik Telmun who worked hand in hand with the enterprising capitalists in Or to take garments to the island in order to buy large quantities of copper there since the island hardly yielded any ore not to speak of the fuel needed for smelting we are faced here with a situation which is typical for international trade on a primitive level. Talmud served as a marketplace in neutral territory in which the parties coming from various regions of the coastal area of the Gulf exchange or sell the products of their countries. Seen from southern Mesopotamia, Talmud and its hinterland on the Arabian Peninsula formed the doorway to the east, to the more or less fabulous regions of Makan and Maluha, through which certain raw materials, um, specific plants, Kulturpflanzen, and breeds of animals <laughs> came to Babylonia. Kulturpflanzen. It's like a random German word. <laughs> okay. That's that's how you show you're an academic in the 1950s. I mean, he's also a German, so like that's, that's fair. I don't know why. Uh, but we're going to talk about one particular Ein Kulturpflanz when we get yeah. towards the end. Yeah. yeah. Anna's okay. excited about it. Um, yeah, now. And breeds of animals came to Babylonia. The efficiency of Telmun in this role varied greatly from the days of Sargon of Agade, um, so the founder of the Akkadian Empire, to those of the Assyrian of Sargonides. So it's um, Sargon the second, the heyday of the Neo-Assyrian period, and to Nabonidus, uh, a Neo-Babylonian king that kind of like went off the rails and like formed a cult of sin in the desert, conveniently next to a copper mine. Hmm. Um, Hmm. According to the fluctuations of the political power of both Mesopotamia and that region of northeastern Arabia, which most likely yielded the bulk of the raw materials. In our period, that of the fifth to seventh king of the dynasty of Larsa, remember, this is 2000 to 1800-ish, the island exported not only copper in ingots, but also copper objects, beads of precious stones, and, most important of all, Ivory. Um, so I've included a link to the full article on JSTOR in the show notes if you really want to get your claws into just some juicy Assyriological scholarship. Um, Thick. Oppenheim goes on to provide other references to Alik Telmun and the ins and outs of their operations described in the cuneiform tablets. What's important to take away here is that Oppenheim was the first to propose that Dilmun merchants traded goods from points east of Mesopotamia. The quote, more or less fabulous regions of Makan and Malucha. So, uh, I like more or less fabulous. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you're hearing, also you're hearing me say, um, Dilmun and Telmun and Makan and Magan. This is just a difference between Sumerian and Akkadian. Um, right. That you're referring to the same places. It's the same but... place. It's just what language you're reading from. And in this period, um, writing was done in Sumerian, Later, the writing is done in Akkadian, and Sumerian is only for, like, kind of 
religious purposes or sort of hearkening uh, back to an older time. Like your okay, your correspondence so the way that Latin was in in the church. Um the way yeah, the way that Latin was in the church and also in sort of spaces of like high learning. Yeah. Like okay. it's sort of yeah. like it's a it's a status mm-hmm. thing. You you aren't going to go okay. speak Sumerian in the street, but if you are very well educated, you may learn Sumerian so that you can learn hymns and you can read histories and poetry and um, have that through line. So at this point, okay. they're it's scholarly language. Yeah. So at this point, they're writing in Sumerian. So Magan, okay. Dilman, Sumerian, Makan, and Talmun, Akkadian. Akkadian. Yeah. But it's the same place. Okay. Maluha comes across the same of both for some reason. So Great. convenient. Yeah. So I think Oppenheim is telling on himself when he describes the ore merchants as enterprising capitalists, because capitalism was definitely not what was up in ore. The way the markets worked and thing, and like the way the economy worked um, was different. It was just different. There were similarities. There are like different things, but it's uh, much more centralized. It wasn't like a free market by any stretch of the imagination. And cons- so he was coming at it from his own framework. Yeah. And, and like conceptions of private property, it, like aren't quite yeah. the same. Um, okay. So more significant, though, is the idea that this article planted in researchers' heads that the Arabian Peninsula was a hinterland, something of a backwater that was here for the powers in Mesopotamia to extract resources from. Yeah, that really stuck around, huh? Yeah. And so this is a classic case of the center-periphery model being applied to the ancient world. So in its standard use here in the modern world, uh, the center-periphery model is defined by the Oxford Dictionary of Sociology as, quote, <laughs> a spatial metaphor which describes and attempts to explain the structural relationship between the advanced or metropolitan center and a less developed periphery, either within a particular country or, more commonly, as applied to the relationship between capital and developing societies. The former usage is common in political geography, political sociology, and studies of labor markets. So by writing the narrative in this way, with a bias toward Mesopotamia and against the then-unknown various populations and societies from among whom these materials were procured, scholars effectively wrote out an entire subcontinent from history. Um, they'd completely bought the hype that Mesopotamia was a revolving door of kings of the known world who'd conquered the four corners of the earth. And so, like, who who cares what people who aren't the Mesopotamian kings have to say? Because, like, they were, like, Mesopotamian kings, like, Mesopotamia had really good PR in terms of, like, <laughs> talking about the the rulers and who they rule and how well they rule them. And so, also, a little aside I could not help but include here, um, since none of the places we're talking about today can be described as capitalist economies, um, although some folks do look for the first sparks of capitalism in Mesopotamian economic texts. And so I I had, like, this panic where I was just like, oh, no, did I, like, completely miss it? And I Googled, was Mesopotamia capitalist? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so there were a a whole lot of opinions in the results. And one such opinion was featured in an unnamed blog post from an unnamed think tank, um, which describes legit. (laughs) No, it definitely had a name. Oh, you are not naming. I I am not naming. I thought it was. um, No, I'm not naming the author. I'm not naming the think tank. mm, Um, mm -hmm. Okay. But um, they described the efforts of an ore man named Aya Natsir. Um, who formed what the author described as a rudimentary limited liability partnership um, while he was off enterprising around the Gulf and like tootling off to Dillman. Um, and so, oh my God, there's a podcat. She's trying to lick my plate where I'm I had telling, my burrito. I'm telling a really interesting story, Izzy. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Izzy's a big fan of the free market. She's like, this aggression will not stand. Um, I mention Aya Nazir and his limited liability partnership of a sort um, here only because of what happened next to me, um, which I find oh, no. which I find hilarious given that said unnamed bloggist was bigging him up the way he was. Yeah. So I Googled Aya Nazir at this point and what it yielded. 
and I'm getting, I got like really big deja vu as I was writing this in the script. Um, what came up was an article by the great Christina Kilgrove for Forbes entitled Meet the Worst Businessman of the 18th Century BC. <laughs> uh, this, is, this, this whole episode is just going to be a beautiful Dr. Kilgrove sandwich because we're going to yeah. Oh, yeah. have some more um, from her later. And so a quick hot take from Aya Nasir's <laughs> Yelp page, which um, I do believe is his actual house in Orr because it was excavated and like they like read the tablets. But like, he just had like all these like angry letters of complaint like in his. That he hadn't his, sent? His, no, that he received. He just had them? Oh, that he yeah, received. like his incoming oh, mail. No. And so according to Kilgrove, quote, uh but the most irate of all of Aya Natsu's customers is a man called Nani, who was so livid that he covered a tablet front and back in cuneiform complaints. The entirety of it, the entirety of it reads, and this is me reading an angry letter. <laughs> now, when you had come, you spoke saying thus, I will give good ingots to Gimel Sin. This you said to me when you had come, but you have not done it. You have offered bad ingots to my messenger saying, if you will take it, take it. If you will not take it, go away. Who am I that you are treating me in this manner, treating me with such contempt? And that between gentlemen such as we are, I have written to you to receive my money, but you have neglected to return it. Repeatedly, you have made them, the messengers, return to me empty-handed through foreign country. Who is there amongst the Dillman traders who has acted against me in this way? You have treated my messenger with contempt, and further, with regard to the silver that you have taken with you from my house, you make this discussion. And on your behalf, I gave 18 talents of copper to the palace, and Sumi Abum also gave 18 talents of copper, copper, apart from the fact that we issued the sealed document to the Temple of Shamash. With regard to that copper, as you have treated me, you have held back my money in a foreign territory, although you are obligated to hand it over to me intact. You will learn that here in Or, I will not accept from you copper that is not good. In my house, I will choose and take the ingots one by one. <laughs> because you have treated me with contempt, I shall exercise against you my right of selecting the copper. So, one star. <laughs> one star. So... <laughs> I just love that. I just love that, like that's that this blogger, this this person was like talking about sort of the history, and he's just like, "This is a great look at this. This is amazing. This guy got it." And then, like a few years later, <laughs> just came out that like everybody hated him, and apparently he was like a total like 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 crook con artist. Yeah, he was a yeah. total like con artist and like jerk and bad business person. And treated messengers with contempt. Yeah, which, which is super everyone rude. Everyone knows you should never shoot the messenger. And also, like... Or be mean to them. Or, yeah, like, you should, like, always... Like, you should be nice to admin staff. In the, in the decades since Oppenheim's article, a lot has changed about our understanding of what was happening in the third millennium in the Gulf. So despite Aeonazirs... Uh, despite the Aeonazirs of the world out there ripping people off, turns out things were pretty hopping in the Bronze Age. When we come back from the break, Anna's going to tell us more about Magan. It's fabulous. <laughs> it's it's the more fabulous? Yes. The more or less fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or back. And if we're going to talk about Magan, there's one site we can't not talk about, and it's Tel Abrak, in what's today the United Arab Emirates, on the border of the Emirates of Sharjah and Umm al-Khawain. It's inland today, but back in the Bronze Age, it would have been on the coast. Hey, coastlines move. It was occupied continuously from the 3rd through 1st millennium BCE, through periods known in southeastern Arabia as the Umm Anar period, which was 2600 to 2000 BCE, the Wadi Souk, 2000 to 1300 BCE, and the Iron Age, 1300 to 300 BCE. So since we're discussing the goings-on of the seafaring merchants of Ur, we'll concern ourselves with the Umm Annar period, named for the type site, Umm Annar Island, in what's today Abu Dhabi, on one of those marshy coastlines I talked about in the beginning of the episode. So let's get a little bit more context for this place and this period from the man, Dan Potts, who excavated Tel Abrak for years and wrote The Arabian Gulf in Antiquity, Volumes 1 and 2. From his friendly, accessible intro book, Ancient Magan, colon, The Secrets of Tel Abrak, the title of this book certainly suggests that we know where the ancient land of Magan lay. 
In fact, we are in no doubt whatsoever about Magan's location. In Mesopotamia, clay tablets written during the last few centuries of the 3rd millennium BC refer to a land called Magan in Sumerian and Makan in Akkadian, the two principal languages used in ancient southern Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq below Baghdad. Ships from Magan, along with those of Dilmun, Bahrain, and the adjacent coast of Saudi Arabia, and Maluha, the Harappan civilization of the Indus Valley, question docked mark? at the question mark. We don't know. Docked at the Key of Agade, capital city of Sargon, who ruled from 2334 to 2279 BC, founder of the Akkadian Empire. Magan was later attacked by two of Sargon's successors, Manishtushu who ruled from 2269 to 2255 BCE, there will be a quiz after this, and Naram Shin, 2254 to 2218 BC. It was named as a source of timber in an inscription of Gudea. That's not, is that, Jude, that's not related to Judea. Oh my it? goodness, Anna. This is Gudea, the pious priest king of Lagash. He's the one with the weird hands. He has his hands clasped and it's like, it's, it's like impossible. Do you know what I'm talking about? He's like MC Escher hand class. Yeah, it's like, you know what I'm talking about? You remember what I'm talking about? Where it's like. Only vaguely. It's, so it's like out, out like this. His his hands are like this. Oh, but it's yeah. Also, and he can't, but, but human hands don't do that. You can't do, do that. that. But it's like from multiple yeah. angles. Like it's, it's so that you're right. like seeing him from like, and he's, he's bald and he's like black diorite. Yeah, I do remember. Great. Mm -hmm. I do remember. Thank you. <laughs> so not even. Okay. No. Anyway, he was the governor of the city state of Lagash. You can see how well I paid attention in this class. In 2069 BC, a king of Magan sent gold dust to the city of Ur. Not the wrestler. Thank you. Ah! <laughs> and in the years 2027 to 2025 BC, a merchant named Lu and Lila living at Ur was charged with purchasing copper, ivory, semi-precious stones, and ochre from Magan on behalf of one of the major temples at Ur. These goods were paid for with Mesopotamian textiles, hides, oil, and fish. These references have been known for many years, and were we dependent on them solely, we could not say definitively that ancient Magan was located in the Oman Peninsula. After all, there are other places to the east of Mesopotamia where copper, timber, and other goods mentioned in association with Magan could have been procured. In fact, however, we have later evidence which clinches the identification. In about 640 BC, as an inscription from Nineveh in northern Iraq tells us, a king called Pade from the land of Kade, oh, I like that, sent tribute to the Assyrian monarch Ashurbanipal. Pade's capital was a place called Izkie. Kade is also known from several royal Achaemenid inscriptions found at Susa and Nakhchivarstan in Iran, which were commissioned by Darius the Great. Fortunately, these inscriptions are generally trilingual, written in Old Persian, Akkadian, and Elamite. In those places where Kada appears as the place name in the Akkadian version, Maka is given as the Old Persian equivalent and Makash as the Elamite. These texts leave us in no doubt that Kade equals Maka slash Makash, the latter equivalent to the Sumerian Magan and Akkadian Makan. Pade's capital is Kie, Moreover, is easily identified with the central Omani town of Izki, long claimed to be the oldest town in Oman. Been there. Since the Sultan Okay, Amber's been there. Since the Sultanate of Oman and the United Arab Emirates share one and the same landmass, as well as the same archaeological cultures, there's no doubt that the names Magan, Makan, Maka, and Makash applied equally to the entire region. In ancient texts, Magan is first and foremost associated with copper. Geologically, copper occurs throughout the Hajar Mountains of northern Oman and the UAE in a formation known as the Samael Ophiolitic Nappy. No. <laughs> <laughs> Nappy. Nappy. Snap. Hundreds of sites. Okay. Just... Samael Ophiolitic Nap. Thank you. There, I said it all together Good. correctly. Hundreds of sites of ancient copper mining and copper smelting, refining, many with tons of slag still visible on the surface, Rude. have been documented throughout Oman, Fujairah, and Ras al-Khema. Magan's copper is a prime example of an important resource in great demand in the workshops of the temples, palaces, and metalworking establishments of southern Mesopotamia's large cities, which, by hook or by crook, had to be imported from outside the region. By crook, if you're, if you're... Aya Nasir. <laughs> 
To really understand Magan's history and role in the ancient Near East, we must have an appreciation of the entire mosaic of cultures of which it was a part. Hear, hear. I am not a great believer in the currently popular centro-periphery approach to history or archaeology. Um, he in which he large... wrote this like 15 years ago. Just FYI. Yeah. If, yeah. Just, he was saying current. Well, so I just wanted to make sure that maybe we've gotten past yeah. it. I don't know. I'd like to think we have. Yeah. In which large centers are thought to have exerted a dominant force over their cowering neighbors in the periphery. Why would Sargon have boasted about the arrival of ships from Magan? He said they were docked at his quayside. Mm -hmm. Why, indeed, would Manishtushu and Naram Shin have campaigned against Magan? Why would the Nana Temple, Lu and Lila, or Gudea have expanded so much effort vis-a-vis -vis Magan if Magan was a mere backwater in the periphery of the great centers of Mesopotamia as Eastern Arabia has so often been portrayed? Why, indeed, Dan? You make a good point. Ah, he makes great points. Um, yeah, that was great. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And so I mm. recommend, I also recommend um, Ancient Magan, The Secrets the of Telebrek. Um, yeah. And that one, I, I, I want to read both now. Yeah. No, Peter's book is Congratulations. very- Congratulations. You've, you've made me interested in Arabia. Yes. <laughs> um, no, Peter's book is very good. And the, the so there is a link to a PDF of like the full of, the full book of, um, of, Dan's book here that's uh, really great. It's like a really great entry point to talking about Telebrac, talking about sort of the region and sort of mm -hmm. sort of cultural continuity in the region. So great. Turns out Megan was doing <laughs> just fine for itself and uh, might have been enjoying more of a peer relationship than one of giving the bully their lunch money. Um, as, in copper ingots. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Telebrac was at this time a major city, possibly a capital of some sort, if because people also love like finding capitals. Maybe it was just a, a big city. Um, and whatever transactions were being conducted or power being exerted would have been done in relative security as the site was fortified in the Omanar period. So the Omanar period is associated with fortified towers and specific tomb types that are seen across southeastern Arabia, suggesting a shared culture or at least consistent, meaningful connections across the region. Um, and so... Even though I have excavated at one of these mm -hmm. towers and have spent a lot of time like hanging out at it, I was just like, ah, ah, like trying to think of like how to describe it. <laughs> so I'm going to pull from something else written by Dan Potts in Before the Emirates, an archaeological and historical account of developments in the region circa 5000 BC to 676 AD. So right. in it. Potts says, the fortress towers of southeastern Arabia took the form of a ray of raised circular platforms consisting of massive cross walls and intervening hollows filled with gravel, the entirety of which supported a surface raised up off the ground by as much as eight meters with a still higher outer wall for defense. Does that make sense? That's it's very tall. It's tall. Yeah. So it's sort of it it you make um you you raise it up so you can see further out Across, yes I, um, no, I do understand yeah, that but, Thank but you. no it's sort of it's and so you've got your outer wall like a sort of fortification wall and then you've got mm -hmm. the inner side kind of a raised up more raised platform yep yep um this is what that josh groban song was about oh. undoubtedly small buildings stood upon these raised platforms as well you every raise me up <laughs> Every example you thought I didn't know. You thought I didn't know the song. Every example excavated to date is also distinguished by the presence of a well in the center of the building, and it may justifiably be asked whether or not the entire fortress is not a lock placed upon the precious water supply of the village in which the fortress was located. I don't or it's just a stupid idea to have your water outside the fortress yeah. if someone's going to lay siege to yeah. you, they can damage your water supply and then you're you're boned I, yeah and so i'm not i'm not entirely certain if like that still is borne out um yeah okay. in, in the evidence but um uh, interesting nonetheless you sort of it have is. everything you need like in this space yeah so put it inside the walls yeah yeah <laughs> So the fortress tower at Telebrac is the largest known of its type um, and was like kind of found accidentally just 
wild. Um, and further evidence that the settlement was a big deal comes by way of evidence of extensive trade networks. These include uh, pottery, and presumably the contents thereof, from Mesopotamia and Dolmen, um, and other places, like the Indus Valley, yep. the Indus Valley Civilization. Yep. We found some there, and we're like, um, oh. So beads of, I wasn't at Tele, I didn't work at Telebrac. I just want to clarify that for everyone. I did not work at Telebrac. Okay. Just, I would love to. Noted. I would love to. If you want to. <laughs> Anyone? Uh, Anyone? So um, beads of carnelian and other precious stones from the realms of the Indus Valley civilization. So the kind of stuff that. I remember that. (laughs) Good. It's coming back to Anna. Um, So there's a very unique ivory comb um, that was found in the tomb at Telebrac that um, is because it has um, these little rosettes. Like decor, it's decorated with rosettes. The rosette style is a very particular to BMAC, um, hey. and so uh, it's thought that this is an import from Bactria. Um, Great, yeah. And so remember the Middle Asian interaction sphere that Greg Posell pitched and we described in our BMAC episode not so long ago. Nice. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So, yup, Telebrac was definitely part of it, as we can kind of see. And so finally, there is the Umanar tomb, constructed in a style typical for the period. Um, So, per Dan Potts, once again, quote, In general, the dead of the Umanar period were buried in circular stone tombs faced with finely masoned ashlar blocks. Anna, what's an ashlar block? It is... A oh man, I know this. It's a shape of block that fits really snugly together without uh, mortar. Great job! Thanks. They're large, square-cut stones. Yes, great. I couldn't remember if they were square or trapezoidal, which they're is square. why I hesitated about the shape. Well, they're yeah, but the the point is that they they're really skillfully rectangular cuboid. <laughs> the point is that they're really skillfully cut so yeah. that they fit together. Super uh, snug. And the, the joins are super snug and they don't need to be mortared into place. Yeah. Um, I remembered a thing. Great job. Um, although regular chambers, perhaps for secondary reburial of bone from circular tombs, which had become full, are also known. Yeah. That's an interesting example of forethought, if that's true. Yeah. These are going to get crowded. Yeah. And so examples of Umanar circular tombs were first encountered by a Danish expedition on the island of Umanar in Abu Dhabi in 1958, led by Karen Freefelt. So this, thus, (laughs) Mm -hmm. thus, it was that the island gave its name to the period for which these tombs are characteristic. Um, So Umanar type tombs range in size from around four meters to 12 meters in diameter. Large. Large to super large. So, Or large to three times as large. It would be bigger than that because it's a circle. It would be three times. But, it would just be like thrice the diameter, but it would be like a, it would be more, yeah, but in it, terms of its it, volume. Yeah. All right. Hey. Just thrice as diametrous. Yes. Internally, the structures have a variable configuration of cross walls, which may either be freestanding, bounded on each end by a passage leading from one half of the tomb to the other, or joined to the external tomb wall, dividing the interior of the tomb into two halves without access to each other. So it's... A duplex. Yeah. And so it's this way of, like, they, um, from, like, drawings, they don't look that totally different from drawings of plans of the tower forts okay which is well which is they already knew how to build one thing they're like we are great at circles um and so doing circles the umanar tomb at telebrac is huge and it contains 286 individuals that's um, very large including one with i think the actual earliest known case of polio I think this is the the earliest case ever, like, found. Um, And you can meet her via a 3D reconstruction from the folks over at UNLV, whom Anna will introduce you to more of in a moment. They named her Leslie, and I I assume that's after Leslie Gregorica, who is, like, a osteo leading yes yeah she like works there does a lot with osteo yeah uh, pathologies and Mm -hmm. yeah that's i it's a very 
particular honor in that I particular think they named field. Her, yeah, they named her after her. Um, so in addition to Leslie from Telebrac, um, the... <laughs> So the Telebrac tomb has proven a boon for studies of osteopathology and understanding commingled remains. For one mm-hmm. such study, which focuses on injured and disabled community members that had been buried at Telebrac, I turn it over to Anna. And I, in turn, turn it over to Jamie Velos, <laughs> whose master's thesis I pulled this from. Cool. So uh, Jamie was a student at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which is UNLV. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the thesis is titled Bioarchaeology of Compassion, Exploring Extreme Cases of Pathology in a Bronze Age Skeletal Population from Telebrac, UAE. And so this goes through several different case studies, each of which is an adult with certain conditions and then well, so I'll go through the the individuals first, and then I'll talk a little bit about the case studies, and then uh, go from there. So the first case study is an adult with extreme osteoarthritis and ebernation. So some of these I, I looked up, I made sure to look up the term. So ebernation is degeneration of the bone due to friction. So osteoarthritis mm. is when the um, cartilage between your bones can get damaged, and so the bones, instead of having a cartilage pad to um, separate them, it's just bone rubbing on bone, and so it can it can become very painful. Case study number two, an adult with a malunion fracture. So that means that it was a bone that was broken but then healed in a non-optimal position. The bone wasn't set properly or it just didn't heal correctly. There was Number three was an adult with a stress fracture. Number four was an adult with dislocation and osteoarthritis. Number five was an adult with osteomyelitis, which is a bone infection. Mm. And then the last case study was an adult with spondylosis deformans, which is a degenerative deformation of the spine. So in each case, Velos goes through the symptoms of these conditions and explains how the individual would have been affected both in their quality of life and in their ability to perform tasks sort of in their perceived effectiveness as a member of society. But but hang on, so put a pin in that. Um, There's no direct evidence for treatment, per se, but each of these individuals lived with their conditions for a while. And so we can speculate, and Velos does, that pain management and care for these individuals was a part of life at Telebrock. And so pulling from the discussion and conclusion section, Although there is no direct evidence of the cultural medical practices at Telebrock, we can glean from other regions contemporary knowledge and applications of healthcare. Tel Abraq was a part of the trade network between Mesopotamia, Harappa, India, Egypt, and other parts of the Mediterranean where the cultural exchange of goods as well as ideas was clearly apparent. From prehistoric time, knowledge of anatomy and internal workings of the body were attained by hunting and killing of animals, accidental and combat trauma, and cannibalism. This research has not aimed to display individuals who were healing and or immobilized as helplessly disabled. It is quite possible that these individuals were involved in contributing to or compensating the community in other ways. So when I said perceived use to society, Mm -hmm. that is a very, very subjective way of looking at someone who is injured or disabled. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to continue, roles and occupations at Telebrock did not mean they were strictly limited to physical labor. For the time any individual was immobile, whether it was temporary or permanent, he or she could have participated in other capacities unrelated to fishing and farming, such as that of a political or spiritual figure, a teacher, or a caretaker. By including these social divisions, we can begin to appreciate the richness and diversity of the people of Telebrac beyond the usual lines of gender and economic function. So I'll talk a little bit more about the things that Bones can tell us about caretaking within a community after the ad break. But first, Amber's going to take one more stop on this boat journey, and then I will get to those Bones I promised you when we come back from this break. And so we're back. And so I, I'd like to think that just giving you like the briefest of glimpses into Telebrac, we showed that like there is a lot of evidence that they were both economically successful, but also... I don't know, socially successful, but they're sort of, yeah, they had a functioning community. Yeah. That, yeah. And, um, so let's take a quick moment to pause at Dillman for me to barf over the side of the boat (laughs) (laughs) on our way back through and maybe shake down some guys that owe Nani money back in or. So if we were going to do my ingots, (laughs) 
in my house, I choose which <laughs> coffee and goods I take. <laughs> I'm going to make one of those signs like in this house we and it's going to like in this, in house, this house we, we respect we, the ingot. We we do not treat the messenger with contempt. We choose which ingots are good. Um, yeah. So uh, if we were going to do this, so, this is such a niche. Don't I, I just, this is, uh, so if we were going to do this, we'd probably go to Kalat al-Bahrain. Um, which is a tell site that was occupied, just like Tilbrick, uh, is occupied hey, from the <laughs> about 2300 BCE until the 16th century CE. Oh, uh, that is lengthy. That's lengthy, at which point there was a Portuguese fort on top of the site. Um, great location for a fort. Speaking of it being in the name, that's what it means. Um, Kalat al Bahrain <laughs> means Bahrain fort. Um, <laughs> The Portuguese for it, I think, was like Halat al Portugal. Portugal for it. Portugal for it. So. Why not Portugal? They missed out. If only they had English then. If only. Uh, If only. But instead they had Portuguese and that seemed to work out great for them. At the start of the occupation, way back around 2300 BCE, um, Khaled al-Pahrain was likely critical to the maritime trade operations Dillman was participating in and benefiting from. Um, and so the UNESCO World Heritage Site entry for Khaled al-Pahrain reads, quote, The site was the capital of the Dillman, one of the most important ancient civilizations of the region. One, it contains the richest remains inventoried of this civilization, which was hitherto only known from written Sumerian references. So those Sumerian references we discussed up top with Oppenheim's Seafaring Merchants of Ore, which was what was published the same year as Jeffrey Bibby's first trench mm-hmm. opened at site at the site at Kaladafarhain. Oh. So he started okay. excavating when the Seafaring Merchants of Ore came out. I'm not saying they're connected. It's just coincidental that like this corner of archaeology started in the mid 50s. Like Wild. it's pretty new. As far as these things are concerned, even though 12,000 years of people like doing, doing them, like, and it still like took this long. So turns out um, there are people there. Yeah. So the whole time. So apart from Ornanshi boasting about Dillman ships, bringing him wood as tribute. She's like, Great. okay. Um, another Sumerian cool reference worth mentioning is still very mysterious and something that Anna definitely remembers. Maybe the only thing I remember. <laughs> the Dillman Onion. <laughs> so <laughs> Sumerian texts refer to this food named Sum Dilmunki. And so it means Sum is like an onion or a garlic. It's an allium. An Sum allium. Is, Sum is an allium. Dilmun, place, key, yep. determines it's oh. a place. So Dilmun place. Okay. So the Dilmun place so if it were so if we were talking about like a a Dillman guy, he'd be like Lou Dillman, Dillman Dillman Lou, and Dillman Key means Dillman the place. Okay, um, just just showing Thanks. off the like almost no Sumerian I know. Um, so, um, so it's been translated to Dillman onions or Dillman garlic. And uh, we don't know what it is. We don't know. I want to know. We don't know if it's like a Brussels sprouts kind of thing or if it like a Jerusalem artichoke. Yeah. Like maybe it's just like a maybe it's a weird linguistic thing, like like how sunchokes are like Jerusalem artichokes and they're not from Jerusalem and they're not artichokes. And what? discuss. Discuss. And, and, and so. um and I read somewhere where it's like, well, if they consumed it fresh, there wouldn't be any evidence. And so maybe they're really what it's like, who cares? <laughs> like what <laughs> some people are very hung up on what Dillman onions are. Um, but something else that probably made the discovery of Dillman era occupation um at sites on Bahrain, like Khaled al Bahrain or the Barbar Temple, um, which I will include some links about in the show notes. Um, something that was like, I guess, maybe surprising that they found this uh, was that for a very long time, Dillman was thought to be a kind of mythological place. Like kind of a Xanadu sort of? If we found it. 
Well, yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Like, so if if all of a sudden somebody found archaeological evidence for Shangri-La, that's yeah. I was going to say Shangri-La would be a good one. Um, okay. Um, so in some versions of the Enuma Elish, the I really put some accent on that. That's not the that's my Sumerian accent coming through. Um, mm. The that's the Sumerian creation myth epic um so dillman was the spot where creation actually happened and so it sort of it was like kind of a garden of eden kind of place um also at that time um bahrain had a lot of artesian wells so it wasn't it wasn't like (laughs) when i worked at starbucks we introduced the like artisan sandwiches and people kept calling them artesian sandwiches and i would just like drag them deep underground yeah I was a terrible barista. Um, <laughs> but they, they were like tons of wells. So it was like a like pretty lush island. Um, mm-hmm. And so like I could get it if you went there and you come back and you're like, oh, my God. I guess since it were Dillman, it would be, oh, my, like, inky. But, you know, it's whatever. Yeah, I was um, waiting. I was giving yeah, you room for that. So, yeah. So that's, yeah. Inky and Enlil were what was up there. Um, so it's sometimes described as the land of the living or the place where the sun rises, um, which if you think of it from a cosmic geography sense, that's like really nice. It, like if you keep going east, that's where the sun rises from. So if you keep right, going yeah. east, the sun never sets. And so it was like a deathless paradise. And that's where Utnapishtim, who's the Sumerian equivalent of Noah in the, in the flood. They also have a flood. Myth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spoilers, that one was first. That one was yeah. written down first. Just I'm just it's fine. I don't lay any claims. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just saying like, one. it's <laughs> Noah Noah is a He's a tribute band. He's a he's a tribute band to Udnapishtim. Um so that's where he retired after surviving the flood and winning immortality. Um oh, and him. so we'll do a whole episode on Dillman one day, but for now, let's end with a uh different kind of immortality through some work done on skeletal remains from Dillman. And so you said skeletal remains, so that means it's my turn. So back to the bones with some more help from our beloved Dr. Christina Kilgrove writing for Forbes in 2016, quote, Unassuming burials dot the landscape of Bronze Age Bahrain with a couple artifacts and offerings of food for the afterlife, but one grave stands out. A young woman with a deformed arm and perfect teeth was laid to rest with a dozen elaborate vessels, many imported from quite a distance. Her bones are telling researchers a story of resilience in the face of lifelong disability. As part of the Dillman Bioarchaeology Project, which is based at the Phoebe A. Hearst Museum of Anthropology at UC Berkeley, Alexis Boutin, who I emailed earlier today to confirm pronunciation of her name, and she sent back a lovely email. She's so really like, nice. Yeah, She's so nice. Thank you. So thank you, Alexis Boutin, of Sonoma State University, has been analyzing these skeletons for the past five years. Her work focuses on the idea of personhood in the past or how skeletons can tell us the stories of their lives. One particular skeleton from Dillman is the focus of her article in the March 2016 issue of the International Journal of Paleopathology, the young woman whose physical anomalies would certainly have been noticeable at a glance. The Bronze Age woman's right humerus is unusually shaped and quite short. Based on its appearance and backed by x-rays, Bhutan discovered that the woman likely suffered from a condition called humerus varus deformity. The growth plate of the bone fused prematurely, causing the bone to fail to grow as long as it could, and the rotator cuff tendons pulled on it as the woman used her arm, causing the head of the bone to rotate too far inward. Her right hand would have faced away from her body when it hung at her side, so with the back of her hand sort of like touching her thigh. Mm. Because the arm bone is severely shortened, Bhutan concluded that it was most likely damaged during the neonatal or early childhood period. In addition to the arm issue, the woman's leg bones showed evidence of injury as well. Her femora were rotated inward, which caused decreased range of motion in her hip joints and caused her knees to rotate inward. She would have walked pigeon-toed, knees brushing together and feet pointed at one another. There's no indication when these injuries occurred, but they appeared to have been acquired during life rather than being genetic in nature. Unlike other young adults from the cemetery, this woman had nearly perfect teeth. She had just one cavity, her teeth were barely worn, and she had little evidence of childhood stress, which can show up as lines or pits in the enamel. Her diet almost certainly deviated from the norm. 
Also, unlike others from Dillman, this young woman was buried with 12 vessels. A small alabaster jug and a bitumen-lined vessel are unique, and both appear to have been imported from at least a thousand kilometers away from Iran or Iraq. And Bhutan writes, This young woman was set apart not only by her bodily non-normativity, but also by the elaboration of her mortuary treatment. End quote. Using the bone evidence to put herself in the woman's shoes, Bhutan writes that she had probably grown accustomed to coping with her injuries, which would have become more obvious during puberty when her growth spurt would fail to help her right arm grow. Quote, she may have needed support not only for her physical health, but also her mental well-being, as she came to terms with the physical anomalies that differentiated her visibly from the surrounding population. End quote. Do the grave goods reflect this young woman's specialized knowledge, her high cultural or economic status, an attempt by the people burying her to appease vengeful gods who cursed her with a disability? More likely, Bhutan concludes, her non-normative body was perceived in both positive and negative ways by her contemporaries. While we will never know everything about the life of this young Bronze Age woman and how she dealt with her physical disability, Bhutan makes it clear that, quote, she was held in unusual regard by members of her community, end quote. And so if you are interested, we'll have a link to the um, Dillman Bioarchaeology Project. Uh, and that includes narratives of people's lives, kind of like not entirely fictional, but based on skeletal Fictive data and artifacts. Fictive is the term that she Fictive. uses. So, like, yeah. Is that is that similar to speculative fiction? Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good. This is a good example of speculative fiction, Anna. We had had a discussion yeah. in our real lives about what speculative fiction consisted <laughs> of. Um, but I, um, so she read one. I was there when she read one about an older woman who. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it was it's like an older female with like um, extensive damage, like like tooth decay. Um, and yeah. one of the one of the associated items was a uh, pick, uh, like a like a bronze uh, pick. Yeah. And so she described, mm -hmm. and I this is why I remember it because this really fits into like my thing about teeth, um, is Ooh. that she talked about like she talked about this 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 woman's experience and like talking about being a mother and raising her children. And now they take care of her and she's older and she's doing her chores. And she thinks about how her like gums ache and how she has this thing that her son gave her that she can like kind of push at the gums and it eases that discomfort. And, mm -hmm. and so it was this really, um, it's something that's very compelling and it's, and it's, it's something that reminds you of like the humanity and, and like gives you a better, uh, a better chance at kind of accessing, like, why would they have this? Why would this thing be important to this person? Why would they be buried with it? Why would they have it? What would and it be why would for? this person be important to other people? Yeah. The human connection aspect is something that when you have um, multiple burials, like whether they're commingled or not, um, when you have multiple burials from a site, yeah, it, it really gives much more of a sense of community and you can get a sense of social dynamics that's really, really valuable for for just, you know, the whole point of archaeology is recreating human experiences yeah. or, or understanding human experiences. And so this is a, a wonderful example. And so these osteobiographies mm -hmm. that Alexis Bhutan does are, are really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so just to wrap up... Um... I originally wanted to make this an episode introducing y'all to more of the Arabian Peninsula, but alas, there is just so much time and so much space to cover. Um, however, let's end on a uh, something of a philosophical note. Let us revisit the ideas that we discussed at the top of the episode about how this place is big and varied and overlooked by much of the various disciplines that purport to cover it. Um, and Because people who study who do like archaeology in Mesopotamia, like they don't learn about archaeology of Arabia. Like it isn't it the, the way, which is weird because the, they are intersecting spheres. Yeah. And so sort of like you still go through this sort of like rite of passage of learning about like the near Eastern core before you can do anything kind of on the periphery. Um, and so um, I'd like to think that we can extend this idea to other places as well. Uh, because now you know that there were actually like really great things happening and like like elaborate things and complex things and like kind of beautiful things and very human things. Um, and so 
hear me out here, it stands to reason that every place that's been inhabited through time by people has a similar wealth of culture and history waiting for us to to discover it, or as is much more often the case, to listen to the people that know about it already. And so the places that you think are featureless blanks on the map between one place and the next when you zoom in are full of stories of their own that can resonate with your own experience or perhaps provide alternate ideas about how to be a human. And so In addition to descriptions of places that I had never seen, because when I went to college, I had not been other places, Um, what drew me into studying this region was that I was personally from a hinterland. So I was from a periphery seen as at worst inferior to, but at best dependent on a center. And what I was learning in this class about Arabia resonated with me. And so... We'll talk about Arabia more in the future in terms of like what it what it had going on, what it has going on. But yeah. but I wanted to like leave our listeners with I hope that if nothing else, you now know why I loved studying it so much and miss it so much. Um, because it changed the way I view other places and changed the way I viewed the place that I was from. And I think that that's something that is extremely valuable. And that's something that not every discipline will give you the chance to do. Like that's something that anthropology can do that not everything that you might study gives you a chance to learn about yourself while you learn about others. And while you sort of change the way you perceive the world. That's a beautiful way to wrap this up. Aww. And thank you, everyone, for listening and for coming along on this journey to Arabia with me and Amber. Yeah. And uh, we will be back in your ears soon with one more episode of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we will be, again, on our little hiatus. But we look forward to coming up with lots of new stuff for you. So... In the meantime, you can find all of our archived episodes at thedirtpod.com, and you can also find us on all your usual podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And um, you can find us on social media. We'll still be, we'll probably be doing stuff on there. You can't stay away. Can't stay away. Unfortunately, I can, and then I like miss out on stuff, but... Well, if you want to find us on Facebook, we're the Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at the Dirt Pod. Did I say Instagram? You said Instagram, yeah. Instagram. See our little photos. Oh, no. Um, Anyway, it's at the Dirt Pod. Yeah, but you can can, um, give us a follow. We will be generating content. Um, I hear one of Anna's followers at the possibly closet door right now it's claws on carpet (laughs) relax (laughs) i gotta sharpen them (laughs) honey no one's coming to get you uh but well yeah so one more episode which is gonna be great gonna be a good one and then uh february is gonna be lit as the youth say thanks everybody yeah we love you goodbye goodbye Mm -hmm.